Welcome to the Guidelines Podcast. The following is a UX Q&A with the Mary Poppins of UX, Debbie Levitt. Enjoy. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us on Guidelines today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And it's always an honor to come after Darren Hood. He's so amazing. But Darren Hood is, um, I'm a Darren Hood fanboy now. <laughs> me too. Um, oh my goodness, what an absolute legend. Um, so yeah, it really is, it's wonderful to have you here. And thank you for um, the amount of effort that you put into educating the larger UX community on LinkedIn uh, and through Thanks. your YouTube channel. And we're going to leave a link to all of the resources that you put together. You really have a robust set of resources that you've made available through your book, but also freely available through your YouTube uh, as well as on LinkedIn. So we'll link to those and we'd love to chat a bit about that in the, in the, in the future. But for now, could you tell us a bit about who you are? If someone's never heard of the Mary Poppins of UX, please fill us in <laughs> about who you are. Yeah, sure. So, uh, hi, I'm Debbie Lovett, and I got my start in UX kind of in the mid-90s uh, when I decided to start doing what was then called web design, except I'm not an artist. And so I, I, but I had taken a bunch of psychology classes in university just for fun. That was not my major. And so when I started my web design company, uh, number one, I wasn't an artist. I'm more of a strategist. And number two, I figured I should be making websites based on what I learned in psychology about how people behave and parse information. And, and so it was kind of UX-y before I knew what UX was. And eventually I learned what UX was and I transitioned into more formal and traditional UX jobs. I lived in the San Francisco area for a while, working lots of different jobs there, mostly as a contractor. And that's where I picked up my nickname, Mary Poppins, because I had multiple clients call me that. And I kind of thought, well, that's kind of funny. Uh, and uh, so I like to say that I am the Mary Poppins of CX and UX, that I fly in, fix everything I can, sing a few songs, and stick around or fly away to where I'm needed next. Um, and then outside of doing real uh, work as a strategist, architect, designer, uh, consultant, speaker, trainer, everything but artist, um, I also uh, do a lot of writing and broadcasting. Um, I think it's it's hard for me at my age to say I'm a YouTuber. I feel like I'm a little old to be a YouTuber in some ways, but uh, I guess I am. Uh, so I do a lot of writing and broadcasting, as you said, in the hopes of, of just lifting everyone's boats, uh, as we say. Perhaps you say that as well. Uh, the idea of everyone has a question, everyone needs help. I have questions, I need help. Uh, I sometimes look to Darren, and uh, and so I'm always hoping I can be somebody that people can turn to for a no BS answer. The first question I have is, you've been working within the industry since the 90s. I can imagine that you've seen many trends and uh, things specifically relating to UX come and go over the past 30 years. What has been some of the biggest trends you've seen? I mean, from from a, a lot of the perspective I hear recently is that UX is a, is a hot new field and uh, that it's something that's come up over the last five years. And like, that's just not something that I can see. And there's been a lot of great resources coming out for a very long time. But can you speak to that a bit about your experience of UX since the 90s. Yeah, so in general, the, I think that UX 
itself doesn't have a lot of trends. I believe visual design has mountains of trends. You know, every year your phone, your website, something was trying to change the way it looked. We wanted gradients and then we didn't want gradients. We want rounded corners. We want square corners. We want new morphism, which is terrible. We want something else. We want skew morphism. I find that visual design goes through a lot more trends than UX itself does because since we are so rooted in cognitive psychology and human behavior, that has not evolved very much. What's mostly evolved in UX is the devices uh, with which people are behaving. So in the 90s, we were making websites and we were mostly scared to death of how long it takes to load an icon because we had internet so slow, most people your age can't imagine it. Um, so uh, we had to worry about every image that was on the page and, oh my gosh, could we actually put a sound clip or, you know, oh my gosh, that's just going to take too long to load. This was back in the days where people, if they wanted to download software, you left your computer on overnight. So, you know, to me, there are, UX doesn't really have a lot of trends. But if, you, if you're talking more about how trendy has it been as a job, I, I would say it's certainly been less known uh, until five or so years ago. And I think what really changed was the advent of boot camps. Um, now, as you know, I am not for boot camps. Uh, I think they are unfortunately more often scams than they are uh, great. Uh, so I do ask people to dig a lot deeper and do a lot more research before choosing a boot camp. Um, but what happened was in the mid 2010s, you started having general assembly and some of the better known American based boot camps, because what happened was, I, I mean, I could get a job without trying. I was living in the San Francisco area. I barely kept my resume updated or CV as do you say, I barely had a portfolio and done work because I had bothered putting together and I was starting to get work just from people hearing about me. People, I would just get called up and go, we heard about you. Can you come work here? And so there was a huge demand for UX and there was a huge demand for the talent, for the skill. And that created kind of that boot camp world where all of a sudden it was like, oh, holy cats, we better quickly upskill people. So why don't we make these courses where they can become UX designers in three months? And, and obviously that had its ups and downs. And so uh, UX has been hot, but I think one mistake that people make is that the skill and expertise will, will always be hot. But I feel quite strongly that most boot camps do not give you the, the skill and expertise. It's a bit of a broken promise. Something I'd really like you to, to clear up is whether UX is new or not. So the term UX itself was coined in the early 90s by Don Norman. So as a word, it's 30-ish years old. And originally Don Norman wanted UX to mean the full experience that someone had with something. And now we use the term CX for that, but it, he's got a great video on YouTube where he talks about how he imagined UX was, uh, okay, I want to buy a computer. I'll research the computer. That's part of the UX of the computer. I will go to a com computer store who 
members when there were computer stores. And I will, that, that's part of the UX. And I will shop the store and look at the different computers. And he, he actually says, which is funny because I remember these days, I, then I'm going to wonder, can I even carry this computer or will it be too heavy or will it fit in my car? And that's part of the UX. Now we call all of these things CX, the customer experience, and UX got a little bit dumbed down to mean digital experiences. But UX was around even before that, because even before we had these things, we cared about how people used things. We cared about when people did things efficiently. We cared about when customers were happy. We cared about creating things for customers. So, so UX really has a lot of ancestors, and those would include ergonomics and physical products and all the things that people have been doing, not just for decades, but really for centuries and longer, when they cared about customers, when they tried to create products or services that were aimed at certain customers. I mean, this is really just good business. So uh, obviously, digital design is relatively new because digital is relatively new. But we know that there are people who care about customer experiences. And, and you and I have talked about Walt Disney. I talk a lot about Disney. I'm wearing a Google shirt today, but uh, I talk a lot about Disney. I'm a big fan of Disney World. And uh, many people tell the story about Walt Disney and Disneyland in the mid-1950s. He used to walk around the park and follow people around and watch their behavior and then make adjustments to his park based on what he watched. And the most famous story is where he watched people eating hot dogs and then dropping wrappers on the ground. And he decided to count how many steps they took between when they finished their hot dog and when they dropped the wrapper on the ground. And he saw that it was an average of 20 steps when they gave up and couldn't find a trash can, so they threw the garbage on the ground. And he had his uh, sanitation service install uh, garbage cans around Disneyland roughly 20 steps apart. So I think the thing that I find quite exciting about what you're telling me and telling us is that UX isn't something that is new and it's not also something that's limited to digital screens. I think a lot of the times when right. the conversation about UX comes up, you end up talking about UX, like deliverables such as wireframes, information architecture. There's a lot of confusion about what UX actually is. Why do you think that is the case? I think that's the case because too many companies saw those deliverables and they said, oh, that must be what these people do. They sketch screens. They make a couple of flowcharts and then they sketch screens. Wow, let's just run with that. That must be what they do. And because that was the most of our tangible work, it was the work we could hand to someone else. It was what we delivered. And so there started to be this misunderstanding, especially, and this was pushed by the boot camps, I think, um, thinking that UX people only or mostly sketch screens or, or things, you know, of that nature. And so there's definitely a misunderstanding, but UX just goes back uh, as far as uh, time can be, I would imagine. Somebody created a wheel so that moving things would be easier. And, and to me, even though we can think of that as ergonomics or something else, uh, to me, that's part of improving users and customers' experiences by making their tasks easier. Okay, so you realized that there was a bit of a gap in the understanding about what UX is in terms of where it's just in terms of a company, uh, a whole bunch of the, the jargon associated with UX, deliverables. You decided that you were going to put together a book and you released that book last year in 2019, uh, Delta CX. 
Could you please tell us a bit about why you made that book and just give us a bit of an overview of the book? Yeah, sure. So what happened was I had written another book before that and it was aimed at, it was, so f first I started by building a two-day workshop aimed at non-UX workers, uh, engineers, product managers, project managers, all the people we have to work with at companies because I realized how little they understand UX and that leads to bad jobs, bad culture, bad relationships, um, bad product, bad processes, bad everything. I mean, name someone who works in UX and loves their job. It's unfortunately quite rare. And so I turned that into a two-day workshop so I could go into companies and train them. And then I distilled that down to a book. And so I've been touring um, conferences for the last two years, mostly engineering conferences, which is why you haven't bumped into me because I go and speak at DevOps, Agile, and engineering conferences. I spoke uh, yesterday at NDC, uh, um, not Oslo, NDC Tech, uh, Tech Town, and I spoke the day before at DevOps Con London. So I'm normally doing engineering conferences, trying to teach our teammates what we do and how to work better with us. And while I was touring that universe, people would come up to me after my talk and go, oh, I've got to tell you about our UX person. And it was basically, they're a jerk. And it was the reasons why they were a jerk. And it was how non-collaborative UX people were and how UX people want to show up and evangelize and hold meetings about how great they are are, but then they're crappy collaborators, they're artsy-fartsy hipsters. These were the complaints that I was hearing from engineers and product people around the world. And I said, oh, holy cats, now I need to write the other, the other book. <laughs> like, here's the book in the workshop for non-UX people. Now I've got to go back to UX people and go, wake up, UX people. We can do so much better. And so I started by writing a conference session that I call Stop Evangelizing UX and What to Do Instead. And I went out and did that about a year and a half ago, March 2019, at the IA conference. And I think it was a hit. And I've rewritten it since, and I do it all the time at UX meetups and stuff. But I decided after March 2019, after that was a hit, I said, oh, maybe I should turn this one into a book. So I started writing. And... Uh, I quit a job. I had a, um, I had a, con a contracting job that I quit at the end of April. So I was now doing nothing. And I had moved out of America and I was a remote worker and the world wasn't ready for that. The world is just now getting used to the idea of remote UX workers. So it was hard for me to find work. So I really dove into my writing. And um, I started with my stop evangelizing stuff and I was writing about 5,000 words a day because pretty much I would open up LinkedIn. I would see some absolute garbage somebody would post. I would want to cry. And then I would go write. I would say, oh my gosh, I have to counter that argument because if I can counter that that argument, I can write a book that will have so many ways to counter an argument that my book will prepare people to go into their jobs and counter these arguments and raise better points about UX and stop trying to hold evangelism meetings and be a better collaborator. So the book ended up... Um, uh, kind of a, now I come from a family of lawyers. So the book ended up being a like, how can we counter bad arguments kind of thing? And it's funny because the only bad review I have 
on Amazon for the book is like, this book is too repetitive. And I was like, well, it's kind of the point. It was like, I'm trying to give you multiple ways to attack crappy arguments. Like, let's do more design workshops and get the team together. And I go, no, no, here's 47 reasons why that's bad. And yeah, and so, um, so one person thinks the book is repetitive, uh, but it's otherwise got some glowing reviews on Amazon. So I actually wrote it uh, partially in response to what nice people around the world said to me were their problems working with UX workers, partially because our, our companies don't understand what, we're, what we do and why. So actually my next project, which I hope to have done um, around the end of the year, is I am now writing a giant training for HR recruiters and hiring managers because I feel like they still don't understand what UX is and what UX does. And our job descriptions are ridiculous. Our titles are ridiculous. We cannot seem to figure out what our titles are. We cannot seem to figure out whether or not we should be coding, whether or not we should know Google Analytics. Jobs are incredibly confusing, ask for way too many um, skills and expect you to be experts at those skills. They don't expect you to barely know Google Analytics. They expect you to really know the stuff and, and of course, pay terribly and um, are really setting you up to fail. A job that expects that much expertise, especially from someone half my age, is setting you up to fail. So that's kind of the next, uh, next dimension I, I'm going to try to conquer. That's brilliant. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, as you're talking, I'm reminded of a Thanks. quote from Austin Cleon, Still Like an Artist. I don't know if you've read that book, but he talks about you can criticize bad art by making good art, like make it your, make it your criticism of stuff that you don't like. So I like it that you've done that. Right. Um, just on a personal note, uh, guys, I, I highly, highly recommend picking up uh, Delta CX. Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon anywhere in the world. You're not limited by actually having to go to a bookstore to pick it up. Uh, I've read many books right. on UX and I find that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of vague niceties and you can come away with like nice catchphrases and that kind of stuff. But a lot of the times it doesn't really get down to the meat of it. And when I discovered <clears throat> Debbie Levitt's book, as I mentioned through Darren Hood, I was shocked that there was this resource that I hadn't heard about before, uh, but that also was dealing with a lot of the questions that I'd been asking, I kept, as I've been reading it, I've been digging into it over the past month. I keep on looking up uh, to my wife and saying, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this is something I've been, like, uh, like this answers exactly the question I've been trying to figure out. Or like, this is, this yeah. <laughs> adequately deals with this, this, this incorrect sort of mindset. And um, I've been realizing stuff within myself that needs improvement and uh, criticism and uh, refining. But also there's some larger trends that I've been actually able to be well-equipped to deal with. So that's my as goal. I said, the, that's yeah. my goal. That's why I said have arguments for everything. I want to equip people to mm. better deal with their work and their jobs. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I've got the book in front of me now. I just want to like just as a teaser for some of my listeners, just give a, a, a teaser as to the kind of stuff the book deals with. Something that maybe we'll have time for this, but something that you hear a lot about in design is bring empathy to your design. And there's an oh. actual chapter on the book oh, where you're killing me. <laughs> is interviewing a psychologist. And they're discussing what it actually means to have empathy. I mean, that, that blew my mind. The thing on uh, core principles of UX, the, 
defining, I often get confused when people have spoken in the past about how agile and lean and sprints work oh. in relation to UX and this book deals with it so brilliantly. Um, oh, how to collaborate with cross-functional teams and like there's a whole section on hiring for UX and busting UX hiring myths. And there's some seriously good sections from there that I was even confused <laughs> about. I mean, even this thing on now that it's happening with COVID and I can remember the beginning thinking like, Oh, but how is UX research going to happen? And there's a section within that section on um, uh, busting the thing of that you can't, uh, th th that people think that you can't do good UX research remotely when actually you can. Um, so yeah, guys, like this is, now. yeah, it's going to be the best UX book that you pick up this year. So oh my I, gosh. I highly so recommend picking it up. <laughs> I'm going to leave a link to it in the show notes. Um, so yeah. Okay, cool. So now we've, we've kind of positioned uh, where you are. We, we, we know that you've been working in UX since the 90s. You've worked in a consulting capacity across various companies. You've spoken to us about what UX is and what UX isn't. We've discussed why there's a bit of confusion related to the industry. Another topic of confusion that I see within myself and also see a lot of in the industry is job titles. You mentioned it before. Mm. Um, there is... You can get UX analysts, you can get junior UX designers, mid-level, senior, principal, director. It's just, then you get things like UX writers and UX engineers and UX developers and UX architects. It's just, it's very complicated. And you like, you find yourself at something like a meetup and you get every person in the group has a different definition on what UX is. And that's, yeah. that's not helpful. And it's not helpful if we aren't able to effectively explain our value and why we have a certain title. And one of the biggest areas I see this in is the difference between junior and senior. I think that if we mm. look at anyone within the Gen Z group that I'm a part of, there's this perception that you need to get bigger um, than what you are. So yes. you need to have a bigger following on Instagram. You need to have your own personal brand. You need to be something before you've actually had the chance to grow. And something that I've seen a lot of within people within my space, within my age group is they end up getting a senior role or they end up aiming, okay, I, I want to be a senior role. I want to be the lead of a company. And it's like you're a couple of years out of university and you're not, you're not, you're still working on your skill set. Debbie, yeah. could you please unpack this for us? Could you please explain what is a junior? To. What is a mid-level? Yeah. What is a senior? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and this is in the book too. And I've also got podcasts on this. I call them podcasts, but I do a lot of live video streaming on my Delta CX YouTube channel. So everything's in a playlist. Come search through it, watch the stuff. Um, so when it comes to titles, the idea is that if you are just starting out in an entry-level job, you are junior or associate. If you are doing a good job and you get promoted, sometimes after, you know, it depends upon the company, sometimes after two years, you become mid-level. Um, and they take off the junior or associate and they just say UX designer or UX researcher. That's technically mid-level. Senior is usually five years and, and more. So if you get, what ends up happening is, uh, and of course, there's levels above that. There's lead and principal. And then, of course, there, uh, usually above lead and principal can be managers and directors and heads of and things like that. So that's usually kind of the the, the 
leveling up of the levels. But what normally happens is people feel like they need to show really quickly that they're leveling up and they think the best way to do that is to negotiate with jobs for higher titles. And so, and I've had people ask me um, privately and in my office hours live stream, um, hey, I'm a junior, but should I try to negotiate to get a higher title? And I always say, no, you should be honest because with a higher title, the, the higher your title is, the greater skill and experience and proficiency I expect from you. If you are lower on skill, lower on experience, lower on proficiency, yeah, you know, there's one thing that juniors tend to forget. Juniors forget that seniors, leaders, managers, people like me, people like Darren, we can look at your portfolio. We know exactly what level you're at. I don't care if your LinkedIn says president of the universe of UX of all time. I don't care what title you got from where. If I look at your portfolio, I will tell you exactly how long you've been working in UX and I'm getting good at guessing what boot camp you went to. So, um, so remember that you're not fooling experts. You'll fool somebody. Um, there's an old joke that I tell, and I tell it in the book as well. There's an old joke where a man, and this is an old joke, so please, it's a little cheesy, but a man buys a yacht and he wants to show it off to his parents. So he buys a captain's outfit and he buys a yacht and he brings his mother and father in the boat and he says, see, I've got a boat. I've got a captain's outfit. I have a captain's hat. I am a captain. And the father says, son, to me, you're a captain. To mama, you're a captain. To you, you're a captain. But to a captain, you're no captain. And I remind people of this all the time. It's like, you can tell me you're ahead of UX, blah, 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 blah. And when I look at your stuff and I see junior mistakes, newbie mistakes, then I know somebody leveled you up too fast. And, and that could lead to poor strategy at wherever you're working. You might not be ready to do things at a strategic level. I expect seniors and hires to hire to be strategic. I expect mid-level and junior to not be that strategic. You guys are more tactical. You're just trying to get the work done well and keep your job. Seniors and higher get the work done, but they're also strategic about it. Hmm, we have a whole user-centered design universe of competitive analyses, research, uh, content strategy, information architecture, interaction design, prototyping, testing, iterating, visual design. What should we do? How long should it take? How should we do it? What would be a good way to do it? What would be a bad way to do it? What are we, how are we going to do this based on the time and budget we have and, and the project or the features or the ideas that are facing us? That's strategy at a project level. And the problem is when I see a senior title or higher, I expect that you are strategic at that level. But many juniors and mid-levels just aren't. And that's not an indictment. That's not a judgment of them. It's just something that takes experience. So when I see the person who's two years out of a boot camp and they're head of UX at a startup, not only will they have to be strategic at a project level, they will have to be strategic at a department level, and they will have to be strategic at the company level if they're head of UX. And you know what? They probably don't really get any of that.
So do not rush to be a higher title. I know you think the higher title means more prestige. It might mean more pay. We all want more pay, but you might end up digging an ugly hole for yourself if I think you've been lying on your resume or if I think you, you traded, you know, I can look at LinkedIn and when I see people, I can tell who added UX to their LinkedIn later. People who had web design jobs, people who had graphic and visual design jobs, and threw the word UX on it later to try to make it look like they've been doing UX longer than they have. Do not start any relationship in your life on a lie. Do not start dating someone based on lies. Do not start business relationships based on lies. You are essentially lying to me and everyone if you are, shall we say, fudging with your CV and with your work history. If people, it's not worth it. Get level up and get promoted honestly because you've reached a higher, a higher skill level, not because you're a sharp negotiator or a smooth talker. Something that I can imagine there's pe groups of people in my audience, I think actually I fit into this category as well, is you, you realize that, that there is gaps in your knowledge and you say, okay, like, I want to start on, although I'm not a senior yet, I want to start progressing towards that. And I want to start being able to think strategically about projects. I want to be able to um, be able to an asset, uh, whichever company I end up in, I want to be able to actually add value and not just talk. I want to be able to have a solid foundation. Um, how would you speak to that person? How would you be able, what, what kind of the growth trajectory and plan would you put in place for that person so that they could end up being an authentically well-grounded designer at a later stage? Yeah, I think it, number one, you've got to drop that ego. So remember, the people chasing the higher titles and things like that, it could be an ego issue. And people with ego issues are usually not going to last long in UX. We are a low ego universe. That's why I call my community the low ego action heroes. So Thing one, you're going to have to lower that ego and you're going to have to pay your dues like everybody else did and work your way up. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nearly everyone else you know at every job they have has had to work their way up. There's no reason you should be special. And part of, of having that lower ego also means, and I meant to mention this before, um, stop writing crappy articles about UX. Please stop writing articles about things that you are not an expert on. I know some of you want to look like you're experts or leaders. Again, I can read your article and know how long you've been doing this. And I can also read your article and tell if you are guessing at this. And you are ultimately not going to make yourself look good to the right people, to the Darrens, to the Mees, to the Dr. Nicks, to, to some of the hiring managers. It does not look good good. So please stop YouTubing, stop writing about something you're not an expert in. If I unclog my toilet, I should not be the person to make a video about how to unclog your toilet. The master plumber should be the person making the video about how to unclog your toilet. So please leave, if you are newer to UX, leave the teaching to the experts. Who do you want to learn piano from? The person who learned piano last week or the person who is an expert piano player who can show uh, having won competitions or, or doing their things. So thing one, that. 
um, thing to the way that you level up and be more strategic is not necessarily by trying to show that you're a leader. I find a lot of people are in a big rush to show they are a leader. I remember looking at a portfolio of a guy who was still in university and I think three times in the portfolio project, he said, I am a leader. And my internal and external response to that was, you're like 20. You know, like, no offense, you know, this isn't ageism for people who are young, but you, you can't be a leader yet. You're still learning. You're in university. And it would be much more humble for you to say, I am learning rather than I am a leader. So I think that in order to level up, you're going to have to drop a little bit of ego, have a little self-awareness about some areas where you might be arrogant or, or rushing too fast. And remember that good strategy is tends to be what differentiates people a lot other than experience. And, and these are grown over time. And I find the number one thing that affects someone's strategic approach to a project is being good at estimating time. So if you are bad with time management or you haven't really been monitoring how long something takes you, uh, start doing that because it's only, I can be strategic about a project because I can say, okay, you want 70 observational studies done. Okay, those are an hour each. I need a half hour before and after to prep. That's two hours each, 70 times two, that's 140 hours. I need 10 hours to work on a discussion guide, go through a few rounds, get it approved by people. Okay, that's 10 hours for that. Now, remember, if you're bad at estimating time, you're going to mess up a project. You're going to look bad at work. You could lose your job. You might not get that freelance job. So to me, the start of strategy, certainly not the whole of strategy, but the start of strategy is to start to be really good at understanding different UX phases and tasks and how long they are likely to take you and or your team. Then you can imagine starting to be strategic about these things. But again, if you are in your first four years in UX, it's really okay if you are just focused on doing good work in good ways with cognitive psychology at the foundation, shifting away from guessing and assumptions and, ooh, here's what I like because maybe the customer is someone like me and, and shifting away from that and doing things based on knowledge. Basically, what you're saying is stop trying to be further along than what you actually are. Be comfortable yeah. with that is. Tame your ego. Uh, don't try and sell yourself as being something that you're not. And what you're saying is the way that you can build that experience is just being consistent and paying your dues and building that over a period of time. Uh, and ideally working probably on, under, under a mentor. So identifying people within the field Absolutely. that you can learn from. Everyone should have mentors and coaches inside your job if they're available. Though again, that's very rare in UX that they give us mentors and coaches. Uh, and, uh, and certainly outside of the, the job as well. I tell people, especially when you're in that first UX job or if you're doing some sample work to try to build your portfolio before you get that job, you need a mentor or coach. Without somebody looking over your work and giving you the tough love and the honest feedback, you are guessing, guessing, guessing at what UX is 
is and how to do it. And again, I can look in your portfolio and I can tell when you are guessing and when you don't really know how to do it. And then you are less likely to get that interview, less likely to get that job. Even if you just came out of university or a program, you have to remember that you haven't, you, you haven't had that first job yet. Your experience is limited. It's limited to what's in the books or what's in the videos or, or the things you practiced at school. And, and I can tell you as someone who graduated university in 1993, um, Real life, you know, university feels like real life, but life gets much different when you're out and working in uh, real companies. Time frames are different. Budgets are different. There's conflict that you may not have experienced at university because universities surrounded everyone in cotton wool and made it nice and easy. So there, there's a lot more factors to doing this than many people have considered because they've been in kind of the sterile and semi-sterile environment of, of academia. Okay. How would you go about identifying a good UX mentor? As we mentioned at the beginning of this call, there's a lot of hype uh, relating around UX and people can, juniors can come across being far more experienced than what they actually are. Um, and the same applies to seniors. You can, you can, it can appear that you are this highly qualified, experienced individual um, when actually you are, you've done a couple of boot camps because you show those leadership traits that you've mentioned, you've wrangled a leadership position in a company, a senior role. And now seven years later, you're sitting there as a senior, but you're still very much at the foundation, the shaky foundation of a junior. How can junior mid uh, starting out people identify actual mentors and actual masters in the field? Yeah, we went through this in episode 59 of my podcast, so people can head over to YouTube and look up that one, uh, or iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, uh, Google Podcasts. Um, so there's a couple of things to look for in a mentor. Number one, look for years of experience in the specialty that interests you. If you look at someone's LinkedIn and their experience seems exceedingly broad, like I do UX and I do UI and I do branding and I do marketing and I do some front-end coding, that might be someone who's trying too hard to be that unicorn jack of all trades. And in the years that I've been around, I've only met a handful of unicorns who really were unicorns, who were genuinely good at all of these things. Unfortunately, in most cases, most unicorns aren't even unicorns. They're excellent at a couple of things. They're good at a couple of things, and then they're mediocre to disastrous at other things. So thing one, look through someone's LinkedIn for them to have specialized experience, years of it, in the types of areas you want to go in so that you know that you're talking to someone who has real work experience in what you do. And again, I had this, I had this conversation with someone who was in a boot camp and was having a terrible time. Their teacher, they'd fired the teacher. They were going to bring in a new teacher. I said, send me the LinkedIn of this new teacher. And they, she sent me the LinkedIn. I looked at it and this teacher had a long history, you know, 10, 15 years work experience and every single thing in LinkedIn said graphic design or front-end development and they were going to be the UX teacher and I said 
I'm sorry, but I don't think this is the right teacher for you. You can't just look at the number of years. You have to look at what they did. If you want to be a UX researcher, then someone with 15 years in graphic design might not be able to really help you with UX research. So thing one in picking a mentor is look for extensive experience in the area that interests you. Uh, the next thing is make sure that they are a no BS person. I find that a lot of juniors, uh, because they want to hear supportive and positive things. They're looking for mentors who will cheerlead them, who will go, hooray, Jonathan, your work was so good. Everything looks great. You're such a nice guy. You really should find that first job soon. And in reality, you need a little tough love. A really good mentor or coach is going to look at what you do and say, mm, you know, there's room for improvement here. And again, if anyone listening has ever taken sports lessons, music lessons, anything like that, you know that the, the better teacher, even if you didn't love them, the better teacher really assessed how you were doing in sport or how you were doing with piano or violin and said, improve your intonation, improve how you hit those notes, improve how you kick that ball. So we need the same thing from our UX mentors and coaches. We need to make sure we're not just bringing on cheerleaders who will go, yay, yay, oh my God, you're so awesome. We, we need to find the people who will say, hi, I can see what's going on with you. Here's your strengths, here's your weaknesses, and here's where you can improve, and here's the plan. Here's the plan we're going to follow. Because remember, if you go to a mentor and, um, and so, so one problem is juniors go to mentors and they say, can you mentor me? That is kind of the wrong question because that's exceedingly broad. So if I go to a singing coach and I say, can you teach me? They, they would get, we'll teach you what? What style do you want to sing in? Do you want to be classical and operatic? Do you want to be Renaissance? Do you want to be Gregorian chant? <laughs> do you want to be pop? Are, are you a rapper? And it's a little bit the same in UX. When someone writes to me and says, can you mentor me? You kind of look a little disorganized. So think about where you, what your goals are. It is much stronger if someone comes to me and says, Debbie, I'm looking for a mentor. Here's where I am and here's where I'm trying to get. Now we've got something. Without that, unfortunately, it just seems like, are you my mommy? Will someone be my mommy? And it can be, uh, it, it can be annoying for both people because then I have to turn you down because it was partly cloudy and a little bit weird. And then it's like, oh, Debbie's a bitch. And, and I, do get, I do get pooped on sometimes by people. And I go, well, hold on a minute. What just happened here? So, um, I think it's good to ask people to be mentors. I tell people, ask book authors, ask YouTubers, ask the people who post to LinkedIn who you love. Ask if they mentor or coach. Some may do it for free, some may get paid, but you paid for piano lessons, you paid for karate lessons, you paid for tennis lessons. You know, it's time for people to realize that the best teachers out there might take you on for free and might not take you on for free, but have a goal in mind. Have a goal in mind. Now, your goal could be simple. I want to learn enough to get hired. Okay. Or I want to learn enough to be hired by this company. Okay. You know, so you have to have an idea of what your goal is. I can't tell you what your goal should be, but I can take a look at at you and your work and tell you how we get there. So th those are a couple of things that people can do when uh, trying to find a mentor or coach.
the last question I really have is, so we've spoken a bit around um, finding a mentor. We've spoken about paying your dues. We've spoken about all of these things. And actually, as you were talking, I realized, you know what? I'd love to hear from you what you see as the daily job of a UX designer. Because that is also something that is a bit vague. People will think that it's, as you're talking about unicorns, like visual design or um, front-end developers or marketing or business analysts and strategies. There's a lot of confusion. What is your definition on what a UX designer does Monday to Friday? Yeah, and of course, that's going to be different uh, company to company. So there are times where I've been called UX designer, and all I do is information architecture and interaction design. I do a lot of actual prototyping. So um, back in the corporate world in America, your day is nearly 100% meetings. It's absolute madness. Somehow people expect you to have five hours of meetings a day and then do five hours of work in what time nobody knows, and you don't get paid extra. So thing one, too many meetings. Um, thing two, to um, a lot of, uh, for me, a lot of actual prototyping, a lot of um, changing my ideas as I go, because that's one thing I love about Axur is as I'm coming up with ideas, I can bring them to life as a clickable prototype. I can preview my prototype and I can go, well, that sucks. You know, well, that's not very good. That summons the four horsemen of bad UX, my registered trademark, uh, frustration, confusion, disappointment, and distraction. Holy cats, people are going to be frustrated by that. Let's fix my own idea. Boom, boom, boom. So there's a lot of that, um, but there, it's different by different jobs and different days. And, and so when I've had that role, that's mostly been my job. When I've worked at agencies, it's been different. Agencies are very different than corporate jobs. Um, agencies always gave me a lot more freedom than the corporate job because agencies are being hired by someone who says, here's a pile of money make me the best thing you can. And in corporate world, too often it's, here's the smallest amount of money we could give you. Please do the job of six people. Um, so the, it's very, very different. And, and so right now working in my own agency, also called Delta CX, because branding's important, um, uh, I'm working on a project right now that, in, that at its core has 70 remote observation interviews and I think I've done 15 so far and my partner's done seven no more anyway um, we're doing a mountain of observational research so that means two or three hours a day I'm talking to these people and watching them do something and asking them questions and then I'm also taking all of my notes I'm going into mural and putting up some fake sticky notes on different things that I heard uh, we're making some task analysis diagrams so I would say the real life uh, corporate job for UX is way too many meetings and absolutely dominated by mostly meaningless meetings. Um, when we finally get down to our work, it's really varied. It's very hard for me to say what your day-to-day -day is or should be because our job titles and descriptions are so funky. You could be just doing interaction design all day, every day. You might be doing research. You might be testing your ideas uh, with real humans, which we should always do eventually. Um, 
So it really, I really can't say this is exactly what everybody should do and shouldn't do. I can only say that I hope in the future that where a job is uh, UX, that we will work more on separating things that are not core to the psychology side of UX, that we will work to separate visual design out a bit, which is already starting to separate itself given design systems. I hope that we will separate out uh, coding because coding is engineering and that's that's where that should live. Um, I know I have some controversial opinions there, but as a non-artist, it's very easy for me to see where UX uh, begins and ends and where visual design, graphic design, branding design, UI uh, begins and ends. And I think that we um, work against ourselves and we make some of our jobs uh, harder and wackier when most of the things people see us deliver are super pretty. Then they think, oh, oh yeah, UX, those are the people who draw those pretty screens. So I can't tell you what your day looks like. I can tell you in the future what I hope it looks like. But even so, that would be varied because we've got research and content strategy and writing and information architecture and interaction design and testing. It's, you know, I remind people the word UX is like the word engineering. When someone says, I work in engineering, you don't know if they're a developer. You don't know if they're QA. You don't know if they're security. You don't know if they're a database person. You don't know if they're an architect. And UX is really the same. Unfortunately, most people think it's sketch and screens. But in reality, it's a whole spectrum, the delicious rainbow of multiple phases, different tasks, different specialties. Some of us specialize on one thing and just stay in that lane, and some of us combine those specialties. So we have to remember UX isn't one thing to anybody. We can work harder to improve how people see us and to create more respect for ourselves, but in general, remember UX is a lot of different things. It's like saying engineering. That's a great note to end on. Uh, Debbie, it's been so, so good to have you on Guidelines. Thank you so much. Thank um, you, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Thanks to the audience. Yeah, so I'd recommend if you want to um, get hold of Debbie, uh, you can find her YouTube channel. There are, I'm actually like, I'm on her YouTube channel now. There are 71 episodes of solid, solid content. You saw earlier when I sort of gave a tease of the book, there's some real stuff there. It's not fluffy uh, vague titles. It's like real, real no. stuff. Um, yes, thank and you. I, I, I'm just going to grab a couple of the of the of the titles of recent talks that uh, that Debbie's sure. done. Um, okay, so empathetic and design. And some of these are interviews. We should just mention some of the podcasts yes. that you're talking about are interviews. Some of them Definitely. are me alone, and some are interviews. Exactly. So we have empathetic design. We have is UX elitist. Uh, we have oh, the yeah. cost of poor quality. Uh, mm -hmm. We have, let's go down, um, how proficient can a UX bootcamp make you? Uh, uh, episode 56. And, yeah, episode in CX and UX portfolio. Read episode 50. Episode 50. <laughs> episode 50. Let's get to that now. Uh, 51. Design thinking has jumped the shark. Actually, that is a, <laughs> I've, I've been preparing an episode on design thinking for guidelines for the last two months and have this body of articles I've read it through. And then I discovered your book. So that added onto my list. So I'm doing an episode on design thinking as well. I think that it's a topic that is super, a lot of people are very confused about what design thinking is. A lot of the perception is that design thinking replaces UX, which is not the case. Yeah. Uh, 
So there's a lot of good stuff on um, Debbie Levitt's Delta CX YouTube channel. And that's all free. So you can go and grab that and you can yes. watch all of that and get a ton of value there. Another thing you can do is- you And can you can watch Amazon. it at 1.5X or 2X if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you can, um, or you can also load it up as a podcast. You can, uh, I have it on Apple Podcasts. So when I'm around town, I listen to it. Another thing you can do is you can go into Amazon and type in Delta CX there. And then you'll find the Delta CX book. And that is incredible. It's nice and dense. Lots of like it's a proper, <laughs> proper um, weighty tome. Uh, so uh, I really it's recommend. It's a textbook. Yeah, it's a textbook. It's really good. I, I, I highly recommend that. And then also Debbie's on LinkedIn. So if I were you, yes. I'm going to leave Follow a show notes to all of this. In the, so go check it out on LinkedIn and uh, uh, drop her a message. Um, do some quotes on kind of stuff she's posted about recently. But Debbie, this has been fantastic. Um, yeah, thank, thank you so you. much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was excellent. I hope we'll do part two. Thank you so much for listening. If you learned something from this episode and would like to hear more episodes in the future, please subscribe and consider leaving a comment so that other people can find this content. If you have any questions and would like me to answer them on an upcoming episode, go into the show notes where you can find a link to my Twitter page where you can ask me any questions that you have or even leave a voice note using the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep the user right where they should be first.